tuned for the Lynn Show. Today, I'm airing the third part of my interview with the indescribable Roger Steffens. In part one, Roger talked about his early life, his recognition of the power of things visual, starting with his stamp collection and visits to museums, and moving on to things written, where his best friend was the librarian, and talking about the serendipitous way in which he created his one-man show, Poetry for People Who Hate Poetry, which took him all over the world. In the second episode, Roger talks about his experience in Vietnam and the impact that those experiences had on his beliefs and what he chose to do when he returned to civilian life. In this third part of my interview with Roger, he will talk about his relationship to the legendary Bob Marley and reggae music and how this discovery became an obsession. He'll describe what is arguably the largest collection of music, posters, memorabilia, and his frustrating attempt to create an archive of this material as the Museum of Reggae Music in Jamaica. He also talks about his radio show on NPR, his newsletter, his career as an actor, narrator of film, audiobooks, and documentaries. This is a remarkable account of a remarkable human being. Hang on. Here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice Oh, I 
to the Lin Show. The Lin Show is about being the person you really are, not the person other people are, not the person you think you have to be, not the person someone told you you had to be or even told you you were, not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. Too many people have experiences in their childhood that discourage them from being who they really are. I interview people who make their living or their life with an art because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And in my interviews with Roger, who of course has made his life and his living in every conceivable art, you have a man who is who he really is in every possible way. He is everything that he is. And of course it is my hope that when you listen to him, you will be asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Am I everything that I could be? And perhaps if the answer is no, that you will look into that and see if you can recover some of what you have left behind. But in the meanwhile, listen to someone who left nothing behind. Here now is Roger Stephan. So when does Bob Marley start? Mm. 1973, I'm living with Tim Page in Berkeley. And I'm still reading Rolling Stone. I bought the first issue in Berkeley the day before I shipped to Nam. And I subscribed immediately. I'd never seen anything like it. I've been a rock and roller my whole life. Alan Freed in New York used to go to his huge stage shows every year. So I subscribed to Stone, and in 1973, a gonzo journalist from Australia named Michael Thomas writes an article about this new form of music down in Jamaica, just off our shore, called reggae. And he said, reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba. From the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. I said, man, I don't know what that is, but i got to find this right <laughs> now, man. And I went out in Berkeley, which had great record stores, and I found a used copy of Catch a Fire, Bob Marley's first album, international album. And the following day, there was a little theater on the north side of campus in Berkeley, seated about 40 people. And they were showing The Harder They Come, the great Jamaican music movie. And when the spliff scene came on, everybody in the theater lit up and you couldn't see the screen <laughs> for the smoke in the room. And on the way home, I bought the soundtrack. And my life changed forever. There was a fantastic store, uh, not very well stocked, but brilliantly stocked, in uh, San Francisco on Fillmore Street called Trenchtown Records, run by a, a friend of Bob Marley's. And he had Bob Marley singles from Jamaica, seven-inch singles and records by Count Ossie and the mystic revelation of Rastafari and Ross Michael and the Sons of Negus and the Techniques and Alton Ellis and Roy Shirley and all these incredible artists. And my mind was blown. I had never heard anything that good. I... I you know, by the end of the 60s, all the major record companies had bought up the little labels and they emasculated the music business and it would turn to disco shit. And I was looking for something that would have the consciousness of 60s folk and Dylan-esque music and, and the harmonies of the doo-wop that I grew <laughs> up, that I loved so much. And 
reggae was the perfect anecdote. It was political music. It had incredible harmonies. And this guy, Bob Marley, man, the first notes of Concrete Jungle. I was, I was hooked for life. And he, he, you know, my life being so involved in poetry, I did the, the one-man show for 11 years. And I still polish it off occasionally. I, I did it on the 50th anniversary last year. And uh, he, he could reduce the most complex subjects to a couplet. Um, you know, good God, this illiteracy is just machine to make money. Wow. I mean, there's the horrors of capitalism in a That's couplet, you know. Keep people stupid, you can pay them 17 cents an hour to make Nikes in Indonesia. So I, I loved everything about his music, and, and everything I found um, of his was just incredible. And in 1976, Mary and I went to Jamaica at the end of my, my final national tour of poetry for people who hate poetry. And um, we got to, to uh, I almost said Saigon. I often confuse Saigon and Kingston. <laughs> um, they, they look so much alike. Um, I, w I went to Kingston to find records because I couldn't find much in the States. And we arrived the week that the socialist prime minister, Michael Manley, declared a national state of emergency and threw the opposition in jail with no charges and there were tanks on all the crossroads, guys in the streets with machines. I thought I was back in right, Saigon right, during right, the right, right, right. And we went to Bob Marley's record shack and they had none of his records for sale because they had been censored by the government. Bob was singing Rasta no work for no CIA. And I had my pocket picked in Bob Marley's record shack by one of the biggest <laughs> reggae stars of the time. That's too long a story to go into. And then two years later I met Bob at Santa Cruz backstage at a show that his guitar player brought me to. And the following year, uh, I had finally gotten on the air on the NPR station here, KCRW. And um, Bob was our first guest. Uh, my partner, Hank Holmes, and I had been on the air for about six weeks when Island Records called us and asked if we would mind going on the road <laughs> for two weeks with Bob Marley. Oh, my God. Twist my bleeding arm. And you know who the happiest guy on the tour was? Hmm? The bus driver. Because <laughs> at the end of each night, he got to sweep up all the spliffs. <laughs> All the roaches went home with the bus driver. <laughs> and I got to know Bob pretty well, and we had a nice relationship. And um, the band and I have been friends ever since. In fact, in 20, that was the survival album tour. And I took a, a fair amount of pictures. I, I couldn't take too many because I had no money, couldn't buy film. And uh, in 2013, the Whalers band asked me to come on the road for two months as their opening act. They were going to play the survival album live. So I would come out first and I would explain the importance of the album, the lyric, and what the lyrics meant, and show some unreleased footage and pictures I took from that time. And then the band would come out and play mm -hmm. the whole survival album live. And, and the reggae beat lasted 15 years. I did the first half of those. I, I left the show in 1987 because the music in Jamaica was getting so slack and homophobic and misogynistic, and I didn't want to play that stuff. And after seven and a half years, I'd played every track I wanted, at least twice, and interviewed hundreds of people. I mean, from Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff and Peter Tosh and Culture and Burning Spear on down. 
or on over. Be kind. <laughs> uh, well, I left the show in 1987. Stayed on the air doing um, an open format show called Offbeat, uh, where I could, you know, play all music one week. I could do all talk next week. It just and whatever I thought would be interesting to people. And okay. So I was on there for ten years. So, so you left KCRW. So then what happened? Um, reggae became a big part of my life. I, I emceed virtually every reggae show in L.A. in the 1980s. At Sunsplash 81, named C.C. Smith, uh, who had moved to L.A. from Michigan, and she came down to the station and saw how chaotic things were, and she says, you need someone to sort things out. And so she came to answer the phones while we were on the air, and uh, we were beginning to get a few more reggae shows than we'd ever had before and we wanted to find a way to alert people in advance to them and, and try to develop a scene mm -hmm. and she said well uh, why don't I start a newsletter I said oh, great idea so I got on the air one Sunday and said uh, we're thinking of starting some kind of publication uh, send us your name and address if you'd like a copy and came back next Sunday and there were 300 letters in the box and CC said, what should I do? Should I start a magazine? And I said, sure, start a magazine. <laughs> well, it was originally called Reggae Beat after our radio show's title, and then it became the Reggae and African Beat, because I had started a, a, an African show, too. And um, then it uh, just became known as The Beat. And it lasted 28 years. Uh, at our height, I think we had about a 60,000 circulation. Oh, my God. And uh, then by the late... O's, there were no advertisers left. All the little record companies had gone out of business, and we had no way of publishing the magazine anymore, so we closed it in 2008. No, 2009. 2009. We had 28 years. And every May, I would edit an annual Bob Marley edition. I did 28 of those, and they became, you know, a, a real collector's item yeah. for anybody who was into Bob. And when did, when did you start writing your books? The first book was 94, when I was 52 years old. And I had met a, an African-American photographer when I was traveling on the road in 79 with Bob, a man named Bruce Talman. And we thought, you know, his pictures and my story of Bob could make a great book. And we had 18 rejections. And he finally met a sympathetic editor at W.W. W. Norton in New York, a man named Jim Mars, who saw the potential. And it's been in several editions and several different languages, and German, Japanese. And, um, it's a beautiful book. Bruce, Bruce is a, an extraordinary photographer. And he was the only black American photographer who was ever interested in Bob Marley. <laughs> so Bob took him to Gabon, West Africa, in January of 80, a couple of months after we'd traveled with him. And uh, he was the only person allowed to, uh, f to shoot Bob in Africa. Wow. And um, then the next book, what was the next book? A scrapbook? No. Uh, in, in 2001, I was invited to mount uh, an exhibition of my reggae archives, which at that point was filling, I think, three rooms of the house. And they took 6,000 things out of here and framed them. And we were given two buildings on the dock at the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California. And we filled them <laughs> floor to ceiling. 
and some stuff didn't even make it in and that was up for eight months in uh, 2001 and gathered uh, tremendous critical response and uh, people came up from Jamaica just to see it and uh, it's the the major pieces of my collection have been in storage since 2001 oh my god yeah and uh, to cut to the chase I've been trying to get it to Jamaica to become the National Museum of Jamaican Music, but they're a very poor country and it's a very corrupt country. And um, I've had nine-figure offers, not nine-figure, what am I talking about? Seven-figure offer, offers. Um, but they wouldn't promise to keep it intact. And... Um, and you're a purist. Oh, it's got to. It's got to stay intact. The Marleys have tried three times to buy it, but they only want the Bob Marley stuff. It's the biggest Bob Marley collection in the world, and probably the most important, according to the Whalers. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but um, they just want the Marley stuff. And to me, the other 90% is just as important as Bob. You've got to know the context in which he created all this incredible art. And, the, you know, Joe Higgs, his teacher, deserves to be remembered, and Alton Ellis, the king of Rocksteady, they all made major contributions, and I want the world to remember them. So I'm, I'm in negotiations now with folks in, J in Jamaica to, uh, to bring the archive, as I say, back home. Okay, so now you have not mentioned your acting career. Mm. Well, that was interesting. I came here because of two people. One was Waldo Salt. Oh, yes. He was blacklisted in the 60s, in the 50s, but was a major screenwriter. He won his first Oscar eventually for um, Midnight Cowboy mm -hmm. and another one for Coming Home and the Vietnam film, and I, I was an advisor to him on that. In fact, he thanked us at the Oscar ceremony. He thanked Mary and me. We dropped acid with him on his 60th birthday <laughs> in Mendocino in the Pygmy Forest. And, uh, you know, he said, for God's sake, don't come to L.A., but if you do, I'll help you. <laughs> and the other person was Bill Link, and Link Levinson were creators of some of the most important television shows, uh, mm -hmm. Murder, She Wrote, and Columbo, and all kinds of prestigious movies of the week. And he loved my poetry show. And when I came to L.A., he uh, cast me in a new series he was doing, Ellery Queen, and he cast me in a movie he wrote called Roller Coaster. And I got my SAG card immediately, what people struggle for years to get. So I was very fortunate to have a couple of mentors like that. And how old me. were you then? In the mid-30s. I was 35 when I did my first movie. 34. Um, I did a fair amount of commercial work. Um, and then in, in, the, in the 80s, I was asked to be an advisor to a, a movie uh, by by John Ritter, and it was about Agent Orange, and it was about this uh, woman in Chicago who worked for the Veterans Affairs who fought like hell to get benefits for people who were suffering from Agent Orange poisoning. It's called Na Unnatural Causes. And John and I became really close friends, and he put me in everything he did, Hooperman, this TV series he did, and Dreamer of Oz about Frank Baum and um, he actually finally got me an agent. And that's funny because uh, I don't know, do you remember Ben Shedd? He used to hang around. I us. do. He was the filmmaker whom uh, I met at a party. We talked about Alan Freed for an hour and at the end of that hour he said, you know, you have a really nice voice. Have you ever narrated a film? And I said, well, that's 
one of the things I do. He said, well, I just made a movie that won an Oscar, and I want you to narrate it. And I went, you conceited. <laughs> so and so, you haven't even laid the track yet. You know it's going to win the Oscar. How do you know? He said, well, I, cre I filmed history. I filmed something that no one in the history of man had ever done before. A man invented a man-powered airplane that could make a 360-degree turn, which no one had ever been able to do before. And uh, I narrated it, and the following year, by God, it won the Oscar. <laughs> and I thought, well, now my career is made. I'm going to get an agent, and, uh, and it took me eight years to get an agent. <laughs> but John Ritter turned me on to the guy, and uh, I got a couple of nationals right out of the box. Pizza Hut and Chevy Trucks. And he was my agent for 30 years. Wow. So, uh, But I ended up doing a lot of voiceover work. I was the voice of Time Warner audiobooks for six years. Oh, I, I must hear the, you then. <laughs> I did all the wraparounds. And I did uh, a lot of books on tape. I did Bill Gates' most recent book on tape. I was the voice of Bill Gates. <laughs> and for some reason, they decided to put his speeches in between my chapters in the audiobook. So you get to the end of chapter one, and it's something like, and now Paul Allen and I co-founded Microsoft. And then Bill comes on talking like this to all these people. And then I come back in chapter two as Butch Bill. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's been interesting. I've had some good jobs over the years. Yeah, you've done everything. Yeah. Are you kidding? But I've probably, at this point in my life, 75 years old, I've probably narrated over a thousand films. I had three long-run TV series, cable series, and industrials mostly. Awful lot of stuff, including one last month on KCET about uh, lost L.A. history. Yeah. But, you know, I'm at the height of my interpretive powers, if that's what you want to call them, and I get so little work. It's a whole different generation, and a lot of the great voices I know over the years can't find work these days. And that brings me actually to two questions. One is, is there anything that you haven't done that you do want to do? Oh, that's a good question. I asked Miriam McCabe that. And what did she say? I just want to keep on singing. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the overwhelming um, thing that I want to shrug off my shoulders uh, is, um, is the creation of the museum. Yes of reggae music yeah that's that's my my longest goal of in doing something uh, to create it on and off for 30 years from the first time people talked to me about buying it so that that's the the great unaccomplished goal and i will not stop till i, I accomplish <laughs> that and and it, and it should be afraid because <laughs> because there's no chance you won't do it. I am determined. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Okay, so the other question I have is, yeah. you have given your life to creativity. That is what yeah. you have done. I, I, you know, I, my inspiration was uh, Kenneth Patchen, the poet, who said he never wanted to earn a single blood-rotten dollar. Oh, my God. That's beautiful. Yeah. So having given a life... To creativity. I mean, it's in every form that you could possibly... Well, I've got now uh, about 450,000 frames of uh, photographs. 
-hmm. 40,000 slides, 60,000 prints, and 345,000 digital frames. Okay, but that's just the visual. Yeah. I mean, you have done in every way that one can create, you have. So is there anything you would say about what that's like, having given a life to, to, to creating in every, in every genre, in every venue that captured you? Mm. Can, you can you say what that feels like, what that's like, what you think about it? Yeah, it beats being chained to a desk and <laughs> getting stuck in the Lincoln Tunnel on Friday nights with no air conditioning in July, commuting back and forth to the New York Times, which was one of my first jobs. Uh, okay, so I that's what it beats. It beats that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's not always financially stable, that's for damn sure. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing things just for money, that is so soul-crushing. I mean, I, I've just been so lucky to have married a woman who understood my my thrust. Obsession. My obsession, of course it is. It's an obsession. Of course. But it doesn't hurt anybody. No. And, um, Actually, that's a great place to stop. Mm. Thank you so much, Roger. <laughs> oh, oh this has been a pleasure. God. <laughs> Thank God. you so much. It's so great to see you oh. again. <laughs> So, as I said in the opening, I hope that when you listen to Roger, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And that you are asking yourself, was there something that you wanted to do? Something that you were drawn to? Something that even today, when you see someone else doing it, you think, gee, I'd like to do that. But you haven't or you don't. Well, it is really the mission of The Lynn Show to say it is not too late the encouragement that Roger had clearly in his early life and as he says at the end from his extraordinary wife Mary. Not everybody gets that gift but we can give that gift to ourselves and that of course is the message of the Lynn Show. So as always I hope you got something you can use from this show. Something that inspired you, something that will bring you back because I will be back and as always, I sure hope you will be, too. You see, I'm getting older My hair is turning gray Oh, you see my face and figure I've both seen better days Well, I won't be retiring I won't slip out of sight, no I will not go gentle into that good night I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang Life's a song I keep on singing Not a tune that I once sang I just keep returning like some goddamn Get off the stage, let someone else get on Well, I 
I won't be relegated or leave without a fight. No, I will not go gentle into that good night. Got some tang, so you won't hear me simper. I may have gotten. 